Welcome to Off the Record with Paul Post and Matt Robeson, produced by WKXL. Stream live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com, available as a podcast on all of your favorite platforms. I'm Matt Robeson, and I'm very pleased to welcome back to the show today Ryan McConaughey, a former senior staffer for Senate Democratic leader Chuck Schumer. He had a great job in the Senate. He helped the Senate Democratic leader to shape all of the policy, all of the messaging, all of the communications that the Democratic Senate were putting forward. And he is in a great position to help us take a little bit of a look forward today on the show at 2021 at the Congress, especially the Senate. Um, But we'll look at both the House and the Senate and uh, just try and think a little bit ahead about what might actually get done. Ryan, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me again. Great to talk to you both and uh, looking forward to a good discussion. So let's start at a super high level. Um, We are trying to get a handle on right now the overall dynamic in the Congress. It looks like it's going to be either way a super razor thin majority for either the Democrats or the Republicans in the Senate. And we know for sure that it is going to be a razor thin and actually shrinking majority for Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats in the House. So Ryan, let me start with you. Under those circumstances, is it really possible to do any legislating or regardless of what happens, is it going to be kind of a logjam? Is it, is it just going to be too unmanageable with those kinds of super slim majorities in this day and age? Yeah. So I think, I mean, so last time we talked, I think it was the day of or the day after Harris had been named the, the VP nominee. And we were thinking that it might be unified control of government. Technically, that's still in play, but, you know, hopes versus expectations. It's, you know, seems like you're, we're probably heading into divided government. And as you say, even if we're not razor thin. So um, I think what that means is that, you know, big sweeping changes um, are likely off the table, but that doesn't mean that nothing's going to get done. There's still too much to get done. The challenges facing the country haven't gone away. So um, we're going to go back to sort of pressure point legislating, which is you're going to identify those four or five must move vehicles a year um, that get, you know, and then people are going to sort of try and infuse those with other priorities and see what will fit. So you're talking about your annual appropriations bill. You know, it still looks like there'll be a recovery bill. There's always a defense bill. And so people will sort of sort of pick their spots, but there's still room to get things done on a variety of issues. So Ryan, are we going to see from Mitch McConnell and the Republicans going forward, the same kind of obstruction that we saw them pledge to and carry out um, with Barack Obama? Uh, are they going to treat Biden the same way? Is it personal? Is it, is it political? Uh, what are we going to see? So I think, um, you know, not, you don't want to get overly optimistic and, you know, the politics, you know, will, will drive what happens in the chamber and the politics outside. So certainly McConnell is not going to view it as his job to help move a Biden agenda. Uh, he does have some some things, though, that point to uh, a targeted incentives for cooperation or selected incentives. So one, he and McC- he and Biden do have a relationship. They've negotiated fiscal cliff together. They've negotiated other things. And, you know, Biden is of the Senate. So, um, again, you don't want to oversell how far that will take things. But there should at least be a channel of communication uh, that allows when those, those big things need to happen. There's some back and forth. Um, I also think that there are some when, when things are going to have to happen, you're going to see a continuation of the dynamic that we've seen over the past few years where, yes, the Republicans have a majority, 
um, but they don't have a voting majority. They have a, a core group of members who are, who are pretty much a default no one anything. So that means that, um, yes, by and large, they can stop legislation, but when legislation like raising the debt limit or funding the government has to happen, that actually drives McConnell to have to rely on Schumer and Democrats to provide votes, and that pushes things to the middle. That's a really, I'd like to pick up on that point because one of the things that we've seen develop um, you know, in late November and early December was this sense that maybe in this super tight split in the Senate, you'd see an ascendancy of moderates, people like New Hampshire Senators Maggie Hassan, Gene Shaheen, Joe Manchin, on the Republican side, people like Mitt Romney, and that you know you you would they would become the new pivot point, um, and, and, you know, and and following that, I, I think there's been kind of some back and forth among Democrats, where at first it was like, oh man, what a bummer, we didn't win the Senate, and then there was sort of some revisionism around that, which was like, well. Well, maybe it's not the end of the world if that leads to some more practical, you know, it's going to reduce the pressure from the left side of the party. And maybe that'll usher in some more kind of practical, realistic, centrist driven legislating. And then right prior, you know, the last few days, we've had an argument emerge that, well, no, maybe not. Because ultimately, you tell me, Ryan, in the Senate, and in the House, it seems like it really is up to the majority to decide what goes on the floor, what actually progresses to get a vote. And if you don't hold the majority, even if you kind of have consensus in the center across both parties, you don't have any control unless you have that majority over what's actually reaching the floor. So tell me what you make of this. Does it really all come down to who holds the majority, how, how productive we can do in making progress, passing new laws? Or do you think that sort of regardless who, who holds the majority, the dynamics of the Senate are going to drive things forward? Well, I think it, it, when, when you, you always want the majority. Uh, so the, I'm a little bit you know, um, hesitant about arguments that, well, maybe this is better for policymaking to have, um, you know, because you look at particularly on things like nominations. I mean, you know, the fact that, you know, McConnell will still be leader will have a tremendous impact on, you know, who Biden is selecting for his cabinet nominations, how those nominations proceed, you know, filling judicial vacancies. So the, the whole executive calendar, it's a, it's a massive impact. Um, it also shapes um, what deals can be made in those spaces and those issues where there are deals to be made in the center. And I think that's right. You look at the 908 group, you look at, at groups that the, the center of gravity does move to the middle in this alignment, but, uh, but those deal makers can only make deals on the things that will come to the floor. So the majority still has a tremendous amount of power. Even, even if it's a, even if it's a tie, even if it's a 51-49 or a, or a 50-50 with a VP breaking a tie. So, um, Given that uh, we have uh, elected a moderate, centrist, incrementalist creature of the Senate as president, and we have a, I don't know, let's call her a bit of a barn burner for, uh, as, as, as vice president, but a former senator, um, uh, who, who carries the water from the House to the Senate? Uh, when we are thinking about moving legislation, does Nancy Pelosi take a backseat to Kamala Harris and try to move colleagues in the Senate, or 
um, does Nancy kind of suck it up and deal with McConnell? No, I, th- I mean, I, I think it's still the, the, the center of action in the House will still be with Speaker Pelosi. It, I think it's very helpful that Biden and Harris have experience in the chamber, um, in, in the Senate. Uh, but the House, as you know, is a different beast. Uh, so, you, you know, se- <laughs> the sen- senators, uh, former or otherwise, are not necessarily going to dictate terms to the House. Um, and at the end of the day, it's still it's going to be on Pelosi, who is an expert vote counter and an expert caucus manager to have to be the one who figures out how to how to keep those five votes on her side of the, the ledger. So um, I think there'll be, you know, coordination. I think that, that there'll be open lines of communication. And I think it'll be, you know, a three-way dialogue on the Democratic side between Schumer, Pelosi, and uh, and the White House. But, you know, it'll be Pelosi's job to manage the House just as it was, you know, under, um, you know, under Obama um, back in uh, the, the 106th, uh, you know, the 107th Congress, I guess it was back then. I thought it was, the, I think it's the 110th. 110th, sorry. I'm, That's okay. I'm remembering, I'm remembering because I had a pin and, <laughs> and, and it said 110 on it. Um, I think I had one that said 111 as well, but it was, it was, it was 110. Well, I'm so glad you set yourself up there, Paul. I, I want to sandbag you. Let, let me let me flip the script for just a second. I, I want to direct a question to you, Paul. So um, Ryan just referred to the fact that Nancy Pelosi is going to have a uh, very slim, like five vote majority. And uh, it's going to hover for a little while because Biden has tapped Cedric Mitt- Richmond out of the House uh, to serve in the White House, just tapped uh, recently uh, Marsha Fudge, uh, Ohio representative, um, to serve in the administration. And so it's going to be a, a razor thin majority. Take people, take our listeners behind the scenes, Paul. What does that, when they close the doors and Nancy Pelosi has gathered all the, the, the Democrats and the majority together, what does that look like? Like, how does she manage that group? How does she keep people together? You know, how does she keep the wild-eyed, you know, Antifa-loving liberals and, you know, the blue dog centrist types all kind of, in the same tent. Yeah, so, uh, you know, uh, let me uh, take us back in the Wayback Machine. Whoop, 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 whoop. So here we are back in the halcyon days of the 110th Congress. It's a historic majority that 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 is new. Uh, hey, Paul, for people who don't speak Congress, what okay. year are you talking about? Let me go. Let, let me take you way, way back. I'm going back. 110. You're 2000, saying 2007? 2006, 2007. 2000, Election right. of 2006. We take office in 2007. I could uh, tell. I'll try to stick to the topic at hand. But so it's 2007, and George Bush is president and Democrats have achieved a historic new majority in the House, fully 70, maybe 75% of House members have, who, who, who are, are, are sitting have never served in a majority, have never served, and Democrats haven't had a majority since 1994. There is a roiling election for speaker uh, in which arms are twisted and uh, necks are caressed and all kinds of good stuff happens. And Nancy Pelosi is, is elected. 
Steny Hoyer is uh, not all that happy because he and Nancy have had their tiffs over the years. But Steny and Jim Clyburn are, and Nancy are now the triumvirate running, running the House. A historic majority were up against a raging conflict in Iraq. George Bush has given tax cuts to the wealthy. Um, he hasn't paid for the war. And there are a lot of blue dogs to deal with. There are, there's a big cadre of conservative uh, Democrats um, whose views, uh, for example, are what is called pro-life or anti-choice um, uh, on, on social issues, uh, generally fiscally conservative, because remember back then there was actually, there was actually discussion about debts and deficits and what's good for the a federal uh, budget and the economy, all that has now gone out the window. But you can think about the job that Nancy Pelosi had to do in pulling together votes on Obamacare, significant, significant legislation. Now, uh, to cut the, the endless story short, at the very end, the only way she got it done was by calling in the nuns who took out their rulers and wrapped the knuckles of the blue dogs and said, you boys better straighten up and fly right because we need health care. And that was the only way she got it done. Fast forward, out of the way back machine. And here we are with a razor thin majority. Good news for Dems. Nancy Pelosi is not somebody to be messed with. So you get into the caucus room in the basement of the house and you take your muffin and your sparse breakfast buffet back to your seat. And Nancy begins to speak in that overly articulated way that she has. My dear colleagues and fellow members. And anyway, and what she does is she sets the rules. She rules the roost. She tells people what she needs. Now, there, you know, the, the house is kind of, uh, I don't know, it's, it's a Will Rogers, you know, I didn't belong to any organized legislative body, I belong to the house, because you've got a lot of members, all of them different from all over. And now Nancy's got to deal with AOC and the squad on the left. She's got to deal with centrists and moderates. She's got no majority um, to speak of. I mean, five votes, if she loses anybody, she's in trouble. If anybody can pull it off, Nancy Pelosi can. But it may mean that she's going to have to do an awful lot of compromising on any major legislation that she wants to get passed. And it may not look at the end like what the sausage looked like when they were grinding it up at the beginning. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson on WKXL. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. We're back. It's off the record with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson, produced by WKXL, streamed live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com, available as a podcast just about everywhere. We are talking with Ryan McConaughey, an expert, a veteran of senior staffdom in the U.S. Senate. And we are looking ahead with Ryan and with former Congressman Paul Hodes at what could possibly get done in the U.S. Congress in 2021 in the midst of a pandemic, 
razor thin majorities and rampant negative partisanship. Right before the break, Paul was taking us inside the experience of being in one of these thin majorities with Nancy Pelosi at the helm from his experience as a congressman and saying that she kind of plays the role of uh, wrapping people on the knuckles to get them to uh, get in line and pass difficult legislation. Ryan, let's talk, let's just flip it for a second and talk a little bit about the position of being in the minority, um, which Senate Democrats have occupied uh, for some time now. It's very different than the House, right? You and I recognize, and I think for our listeners, in the House, being in the majority really is just about everything. I, I used to joke with people that you basically take one significant vote as a member of Congress, and that's for speaker. Once you've delivered the majority to your party, the majority sets who's the chairs of the committees, what are the agendas, how do the bills move, what are the rules, what are the, what are the very rules for how you consider everything in the House and each individual piece of legislation. You can make up a rule for, you know, that you can only uh, use uh, adverbs in, you know, in discussing a bill. It's very different in the Senate. Is there a lot more ability to affect things as a member of the minority, if that is indeed the position Democrats continue to find themselves in, or are they also kind of, you know, stuck laboring in obscurity, like happens in the House? Sure, and and I mean they're they're not comparative com comparable at all. I mean the Senate rules afford individual senators a lot more power. Um, you know, one senator just by withholding consent can cannot necessarily stop something in its tracks. Sometimes they can if they have help, but they can certainly slow things down. And time on the Senate floor is a precious resource. There are enough ways to to slow something down as one member or a small group of members. Um, there's also, you know, most of the legislation that passes through the Senate actually passes by unanimous consent. It's not the big bills. It's the little things that still matter, still benefit people's lives, still help constituents back home that matter to members. But you need everyone to sign off on that. So one person can hit the brakes. Uh, so certainly in the minority in the Senate, you have a lot more. You can still play on issues and you can you can find these groups like the 908 group and particularly um, in a Senate where the, the, the decision making is going to be concentrated in the middle. Um, you know, moderate Democrats are going to have a lot of sway. Um, I also think there are factors, you know, we, you talked about in the intro, some of the factors that are impediments to getting things done, negative partisanship. We talked about, you know, it's the fight, divided government and McConnell is, you know, first and foremost, going to be a, a Biden opponent. But um, look, there are, there are still major issues that people need to address. I mean, the economy and the coronavirus are still going to be with us as things that need to be taken care of in the early part of next year. Um, and also politically, um, we don't know what's going to happen in Georgia, but right now, Republicans are defending 20 Senate seats to Democrats 13. They're in more vulnerable, more open places. You've got an open race in Pennsylvania. You have a potential, you have an open race in North Carolina. With you mean in 2022? Yes, in 2022. But that's going to affect their decision making right off the jump. How does that affect things when you've got these, this number, the, this really large number of looming competitive races on your side? How does that change the dynamic? Well, it means that, you know, uh, McConnell is going to have to have to come into the Senate understanding and, and you know, and look, he's a he is, uh, a, you know, an astute political um, operator. So he's going to you know, he's going to know this. But, you know, you've got Johnson in Wisconsin. You've got an Ohio race. He's going to need to know that um, that those members are going to need things to take home and that, you know, in some respects, for some of them, maybe being against Biden is enough. Probably not in our times. 
And so, uh, you know, he's, he's, there's, there's going to need to be something that those members can take home and show for their efforts over the next two years. So there's a pressure to find things that they, pressure to put up wins, you know, because he's also controlling the Senate. Uh, so he is somewhat accountable for that. Um, and there are also just members who want to get things done. I mean, um, there are members on both sides who actually want to deal with climate. That issue is not any less urgent. It doesn't care that divided government uh, is with us. The emissions are still going up. And, you know, it's not like it's going to wait for two years until we have unified government to address. Um, there are issues on the state level that are bubbling up to the federal level that individual members care about. So, um, you, you know, even as, as much as McConnell has a reputation of being no and no is his default against the Democratic president, there are going to be times where he's going to feel compelled uh, to, to move things and Democrats by identifying those areas. Those are, those are the places where you can build some accomplishment. So, you know, it, I get what you're saying, and it raises a kind of 40,000-foot question for me that, that, is, that may be a little bit off track because it doesn't relate to particular uh, legislation. Uh, but that is the overall mood um, and approach of Republicans writ large and then uh, those who represent Republicans. I mean, we've just come through um, a, a rather fractious election, and we are in a, a time when a lot of people see um, a continuing and, and desperate challenge to our democratic institutions. Now, on, on one hand, people say, well, the democratic institutions held, um, uh, Republican-packed courts uh, rejected uh, the attempted, an attempted coup um, of election officials, many of them Republicans, rejected specious claims uh, and, and, and insanity. Um, and who knows uh, the real motivations behind Trump, who now commands, um, commands the party uh, and still and seems to have a death grip on the Republican Party, he's able to call people out with thousands of people in the street uh, protesting what is a, what is done, um, and and frankly, you know, we've seen uh, 220 of the elected representatives uh, refuse to 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 say that Joe Biden is going to be president. Um, now, in a few weeks, he he will be. <laughs> what what role? Does the form how how do the Republicans deal with where they were and and where the country needs to go? Do they simply pivot and say, "Well, that all was yesterday. Today we're um, we're coming back to our senses. We we've we we don't apologize. We never we won't even discuss it. But we're just going to act differently." Or is the death grip? that Trump has real, and does it continue? Because um, he may be all, you know, in a couple of weeks, he may announce that he's running again. Um, and so how does that play in to what you see for, for, for the possibility of getting anything done? If he's tweeting from the sidelines, uh, don't do anything, and the Republicans continue to act like crazy people. Well, I think it's, um, first of all, to, to, your, to your question of whether or not it'll dissipate, I mean, we, we obviously don't know, but if you look at the tone of the race in Georgia and, and the rhetoric from Purdue and Leffler, it certainly seems like 
they feel like they've they've got to adopt adopt some Trumpist rhetoric. And I think that you know that rhetorical positioning looks like it'll be with us for quite some time. But um, there's a matter of, of rhetorical impact versus practical impact. And I think you can see a little bit of what might happen uh, with the discussion around. Um, now I'm going to get uh, obscure as I tend to at times in this on this show, so I apologize. But there's a hey, obscure is what we're all about. We're deep <laughs> so, into obscure. So there's there's a there's a there's a policy called Section 230 that's about the regulation of of online platforms and Trump once uh, once it changed um, in the Defense Authorization Act and has threatened to veto it veto the defense bill, which is one of those major bills that passes every year um, if he doesn't get his way on this. And you're hearing Republicans say that this could be the first veto override um, in the Trump presidency. And I think that's instructive because it points out that, you know, they Republicans will rhetorically ride with Trump. They will, and they, they may continue that, but they also understand what has to get done in practical terms and they'll find a way to do those things. I mean, we, you know, we we're still likely looking at even with the election protests, um, it seems like at the very least we'll get a CR this week to keep the government open uh, or some sort of reduced stimulus package. So um, while the rhetoric may be hot, um, I think that in practical terms, again, you know, you have divided government, which puts a ceiling on exactly what can be done, but it doesn't mean, I, I wouldn't anticipate the Rep congressional Republicans are just gonna walk away from government and, and claim the whole thing is illegitimate and not participate in the process. Well, okay, let's get even a little bit more bullish than that, because you were making reference a second ago to thinking that there is a possibility of, of something constructive happening on climate. And, you know, look, from a naysayer standpoint, one could easily say, gee, man, you know, are you kidding me? Like, you know, we've gone through the last nine months where we couldn't get on the same page about a crisis, a global crisis that's happening now uh, in the form of this pandemic. But on the other hand, you pointed to, you know, A, there's pressure on McConnell to have some deliverables for a large number of members of his caucus who are going to be on the ballot in 2022. Um, and there are Republicans who take a constructive view toward toward climate. So what are what are sort of the the tea leaves that you read? What do you think it might look like? Um, I mean, you you're in the inside circles. Is that is that what the buzz is that that something really could get done on climate legislatively? Yeah, I think there's yeah, there's there's a real path forward because I, this is, you know, there are still members on both sides who want to get this done. You're seeing an increasing uh, support, particularly in the business community uh, and the financial community in terms of being pro climate action. And that changes the space a little bit for the Republican and uh, Democratic dynamic. You're also seeing support for climate action growing in rural areas. So, uh, you know, you're certainly not uh, it, not going to see, um, you know, necessarily a carbon tax in this divided government or a cap and trade. But I think you can see, you know, steps in in the in the, in the direction of sort of market based solutions for emissions uh, reduction. So, um, you know, you've got on one hand, you've got the Biden team with its signaling that they are going to take an all of government approach. When you look at their rollout of their foreign policy and economic teams, climate messaging was woven into all of those announcements. Um, and so on the, on the administration side, you're going to see it. Um, you have Republicans supporting things like the Growing Climate Solutions Act, which would help farmers uh, sequester carbon in soil and then get paid for that on the carbon markets. So you have a lot of ideas that move the ball in that direction and that are bipartisan. And between the environmental um, and business communities kind of coming together to support some of these ideas, it's a place where people can get, um, can get a good win on a, on a major issue that 
to have advocacy for on both sides. Um, you know, I think that there are some other other areas where you know the the their um, the tea leaves sort of auger well. Um, it may actually be infrastructure week at some point this year. Um, that's because you have the transportation bill is up. Um, it's a, it, there was progress in both the House and the Senate on a bipartisan basis on bills last year that didn't make it across the finish line. And look, and it's jobs, and we need jobs in this economy. It's building things. It's and it's also it's a magnet for some of those efficient transportation, transportation innovation, climate policies, other things that people want to get done. Um, and then one that may may be a little less obvious. It's a little bit new to Congress, although there's been action on it this year. Um, there's a real chance that there's going to be movement on cannabis in Congress this year. Um, if you look at the state level, you have New Jersey, South Dakota, Montana, Arizona, um, all passing personal use legislation. There's medical uh, movement in Missouri. Um, and you have legalization and decriminalization gaining support in Republican areas. Democrats have been there. They passed a decriminalization bill in the House um, you know, earlier this month. So you could see, again, I don't think you're going to see full decriminalization, but you have um, between, you know, an agricultural coalition, a libertarian civil, you know, coalition, you know, a personal freedom coalition building on both sides of the aisle on this um, that, that may um, push the, you know, Congress to take some steps to, to pave the way for relaxing of, uh, of current regulation uh, and legal restrictions. Yeah, you know, that is, you have just, you've just, um, sort of uh, talked about something that I thought we would never see um, ever coming out of the federal government in my lifetime. Uh, now, albeit I'm a geezer at this point, um, it, just, it just never seemed possible. And the pressure from the states, as you say, is building um, on cannabis. Uh, infrastructure has always been uh, a, a real puzzler to me. I mean, in terms of, of uh, not in terms of my inability to understand why, in heaven's name, Republicans would not figure out how to uh, twist an infrastructure bill to their uh, political advantage, and 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 agree on something that means business and jobs. It just never struck me, uh, but but. It may happen. I'd actually like to pull it apart a little bit when we come back. Yes, that's a great idea. Let's take a quick break, and then we're going to talk about infrastructure. It's off the record on WKXL. Welcome back to Off the Record on WKXL with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson and our spectacular guest, Ryan McConaughey, a legendary expert. I mean, I'm overselling it a little bit, but not that much. In DC circles, Ryan is a name to know when it comes to how to make things happen in the US Senate, how to make things happen in Congress, and how to talk about them. And uh, that's what we're going through right now. So right before our break, Paul was teeing up um, something off of something that Ryan had said that it might eventually be infrastructure week at some point. Ryan, you were making a little bit of a joke there about the fact that under the Trump administration, every week they're like, okay, we're going to pivot to infrastructure. It was sort of like back in the Obama administration. It's like, okay, now we're going to pivot to Asia. As soon as we're done dealing with terrorists, now we're going to pivot to Asia. Okay. We, we got to deal with Brexit, but then we're going to pivot to Asia. All right. So, so what you were saying is that uh, it, it's been a longstanding trope 
we're going to pivot to infrastructure. And Paul, you were teeing up this question of why on earth wouldn't we do this? So Ryan, let me, let me just take Paul's alley and oop it over to you. Um, what would something on infrastructure mean? What are we talking about? Are we just talking about roads? Are we talking about broadband? Are we talking about dams? Uh, you know, a, a, a third of which are structurally deficient in this country. What would it mean? What, what would that look like? Sure. Well, you start with the traditional transportation bill, which the most recent iteration of is called the FAST Act. And that's, you know, that's basically your highway funding, but it's also your mass transit funding. So it's, it really is. And one of the reasons why it can get done is because it does benefit the whole country. It's got your highways and your roads for your rural areas. Uh, you've got mass transit funding, uh, you know, and for, for major urban areas. But you've also increasingly had um, innovation taking place in this bill. There's, you know, as, as there's been a move towards um, sort of what they call multimodal transportation. So this is also where bike paths, you know, green infrastructure, greenways, um, electric vehicle charging is something that you could see more in this type of this type of vehicle. Um, Micro mobility, e-scooters and e-bikes potentially getting promoted more as different means of transportation. And so you have that you have that basic transportation structure, but then within that, and because I think this is one of those. Um, you know, quote unquote, pressure point pieces of legislation that will have to get done since you have an expiring authorization, um, that you're going to have people looking to experiment and think a little bit about, are there different ways we can use uh, some of these grant programs that provide funding to states and cities to come up with transportation solutions that reduce air pollution uh, or reduce their, you know, or reduce emissions. Um, are, you know, and, that, and that can be outside of the purview of traditional just roads and, and rails. Um, you know, there's and, and you know there'll be support for research into battery technology to move transportation towards electrification. So there are a lot of off offshoots that uh, can meet a lot of uh, goals that individuals in Congress want to face. So it's a big boat. Um, it has it's it's a significant funding resource, and that's actually where the the, the trip up is always over the funding. Um, but usually, people find a way. Are Democrats smart enough to um, focus on? Uh, items in an infrastructure bill that are going to actually do something to make a difference in the lives of people in rural America? Are Democrats going to wrap their brain around the deficiencies in attention uh, that have been paid to uh, the wasteland uh, that so many, that caused so many uh, in this country to jump Demo the Democratic ship and and see that the Republicans were somehow uh, their saviors. Um, can Democrats do that? Or is this bill uh, going to end up uh, as um, an urban, uh, the, the urban playground? Oh, they certainly can do that. And any reading of the election would argue that they have to do that. I mean, you, you look at that shrinking house majority and you know, it's made up of of members like you know Abby Finkenauer, Colin Peterson, uh, you know Torres Small in New Mexico. Uh, you know members, you know members in rural areas that that did not make it across the finish line. Um, and again, the the infrastructure bill is so large and so sweeping because it touches on um, you know every aspect of our transportation infrastructure. That you know certainly um, addressing rural infrastructure needs. There's a great group out there, One Country Project, that um, that looks at this. You look at just the distance that people in um, in rural rural communities have to travel uh, to get to hospitals, groceries, every everything is a travel expense. Everything is, uh, you know, more expensive, more time consuming if you're in a rural area. And so, 
investments in those communities that can make life easier, but also drive more economic development, um, certainly be, should be the type of thing that Democrats should be talking about. And if you go back to, you know, the, the New Deal coalition, historically, Democrats have had a good message for rural America. They just kind of need to rediscover it and, and reamplify it. Yeah, you know, I, I recall seeing a statistic, Paul, back when you were in Congress, that at the time it was faster and cheaper to ship something to market from China to the East Coast of the United States than from Ohio. That is a competitiveness issue for business. Um, and uh, it's awfully hard to see us doing well economically if that continues to be the case. I wanna ask both of you kind of a, another sort of behind the scenes question. I, I guess I'll start with you, Ryan, but Paul, I'd like to turn it over to you as well. So at the start of a new Congress like this, when you start to think about, well, what, where are the areas that we could get something done? How do you kick off that process? Is this a matter of, you know, take us inside. What does that look like? Are you sitting down, Ryan, with a, with a boss like Democratic leader Schumer and going down the, the list? And then is he going and having a conversation with Mitch McConnell and, and seeing what they can put up on the board? Are you starting to have some informal conversations with, with colleagues on the Republican side and, and hashing out ideas? Um, what, what does that look like? And then Paul, I want to tee that same question over to you. Like, how do you, how do you reach out and kind of get a legislative process started? Well, I think, you know, you start both McConnell and Schumer are caucus managers, first and foremost. So they start with their own membership and that's, you know, the relevant committee members, committee leaders, um, people who have expressed an interest in getting a priority in. And sort of that's, that's, that's where your sort of your agenda framework comes up, comes up with. And then you have sort of, you coalesce that around the core values. Um, and then you, you know, traditionally you let the committee process do its work. Um, and so you'll have the, the Republicans and Democrats on those committees will sort of provide the baseline. And then um, leadership will sort of monitor that process um, and then come in as, as, the, as the bill progresses and start to negotiate the high level and start to basically set parameters for decision making. So um, it's kind of an inside out process where, um, you know, both caucuses eventually through the leadership and through the committee members who have been leading the process work things out at a high level. Um, It'll be a different, uh, obviously, uh, level of engagement from a, a Biden White House in terms of priorities and in terms of involvement uh, than I think is previously, um, you know, we've had over the past few years. So um, it, it remains to be seen exactly when, uh, you know, and how, how vigorously that White House will sort of interject into the policymaking process, whether it's just priority setting and then letting Congress work its will um, or being actively involved in negotiations. Um, but you know, once once those priorities are set, the actual work of of building the legislative achievements usually takes place through those in, inter and intra caucus sort of working groups and leadership positions. And Paul, over to you. I mean, you actually you actually passed bipartisan bills that that you crafted, and and you somehow managed to get both Democrats and Republicans on board with that. What does that look like? Well, that's only because you were my chief of staff and uh, were able to um, bludgeon your, your, your colleagues into bludgeoning their members into passing stuff that you wanted to pass. I can't take any credit for anything because because you had all you had all the ideas and did all the work. So you, what people, I think, don't realize um, who are listening to this show is that the members of Congress really don't do much. It's their staff. The members of Congress are mere mouthpieces who um, get up on television or now on the YouTube and, um, and, and bloviate. But the actual work that gets done gets done by really smart people uh, like you and like Ryan. Um, but that's, that said, uh, what, what's interesting is that 
I'm I'm thinking about Jim Clyburn in the house and his uh, now um, absolute close connection to Joe Biden as the savior of the Biden election. Um, so it means that in in addition to uh, the president and all his people having um, a close relationship with former Senate colleagues, um, the House has a particularly good avenue to talk to the White House um, in, in Jim Clyburn. And, and Clyburn uh, has been around a long, long time. And um, I, worked, I worked as a member of his whip team uh, when, I, when I was there. Um, and he, uh, and just so we, just so our listeners know, you're not talking about a horse and buggy act. No, you're no, talking no. about beating down members of your own caucus to get them. We're to talking that. about, we're talking about the gentle, persuasive arm twisting that goes into securing votes and making sure that the house members know which side of, uh, the bread, their butter goes on so that, uh, whatever deals need to be made for votes happen. But Clyburn is, and Pelosi have a very strong working relationship. And I, I think that uh, Pelosi will be gathering new members as she does weekly to hear and dismiss their views um, uh, because she's got her own opinions. She will be bringing together her, the leadership on the various committees, and they will be following her lead on what she sees as the priorities, uh, because what she says goes in the House of Representatives. I mean, people could come to her with all kinds of ideas, and she will listen really politely for a very brief time and then tell them exactly what will happen, and they will all go off to do her bidding in their committees where they will then gather the member, the leaders of their subcommittees and the other members in caucuses, uh, essentially committee caucuses, and talk about what they're going to do and how, how it's going to happen. And that's the way it happens in the House of Representatives. It's, 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 uh, it's quite top down and uh, not, uh, not, not all that democratic. Yeah, I think that's and that that's a key contrast point in that um, I think one of the evolutions of the Senate in you know over the last 10, 20 years has been it has become more top down. Leadership is more involved in the in guiding the process from the start. But compared to the House, it's still a much more participatory, much more participatory, uh, much more bottom up process. Well, and that I mean, there are so few members in the Senate. It's so easy. I mean, it's so easy. There's only, you know, 49 or 50 people uh, to deal with. In the House, you've got this, this, this huge raucous every two-year election cycle that, that you've got to deal with. Senators have so much leisure time in which to actually do some work, whereas members of the House are often only thinking about, oh, my God, I just got I just got through one election. Now it's time to gear up for another. Oh, yeah, I've got to go and be a legislator, too. So so to the audience, you're actually hearing a great example of a time honored Capitol Hill tradition, which is uh, members of the House firing shots at the Senate. 
<laughs> I can't get I, I I you know I learned I learned my lessons well. I'm once a member of once a member of the house, always a member of the house. I can't. It's not like something uh, I can I can get away with. In terms of a climate bill, uh, which seems a radical idea for any kind of compromise, what do you think the business community needs to see in order to really put the pressure on? Uh, the Republicans in order to get something done on climate. <laughs> sure. Well, I'll tell you what, it's a, you said, you know, business pressuring Republicans, it's pressure is part of it, but it's also business providing cover and endorsement because the climate debate has really shifted. If you look at exit polls, you had a majority of sort of independents, you know, and liberal Republicans, moderate Republicans saying that climate's a serious issue that needs to be dealt with. So the sort of Inhofe, uh, you know, sort of aggressive, um, you know, rejection of climate it still exists. It's still a strain, but it's not, you, you also have the Climate Solutions Caucus, people like Senator Braun. So it's, I, I think there's a real opportunity for, you know, the business community wants, knows that this is an economic challenge. They want something that's durable, that's market-based, and they can endorse those policies and give Republicans and Democrats cover to compromising at something done. Folks, this is Off the Record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes. We've been talking to Ryan McConaughey a legendary senior Democratic staffer who helped make things run in his time in the Senate. For Matt Robeson, Paul Hodes on WKXL podcast all over the place. It's off the record. Ryan, thanks. And folks, we'll be back next week with more Off the Record. Thank you.